It is such a joy to be with you today here at Calvary Baptist in Oshawa, and a delight to have been outside today with uh, the number of car owners. Just, I had such a great time. The breakfast as well. And as we gather today, I'm praying that you'll recognize one of two things. Either you're here today and you're not a believer, you're someone who's come in from outside, or you're here visiting with your kids or with your parents, and you'll get a glimpse of who Jesus is. Or today, if you're sitting here and you know Jesus, I'm praying that by the end of this message, God will just grant you a whole new vision for what it means that he loves you. I love dumb crook stories. I just love reading stories about crooks who are idiots. And it's true. I remember reading Ted. He was in Arkansas. Ted took a sawed-off shotgun and held up what he thought was an armored truck, and he drove it away. And as he drove it away, the men who he stole the truck from were stunned because it was a bull America truck full of mop heads. And so when the police pulled him over, they had a lot of cleaning up to do, I guess. I love the story of Tyson. Tyson broke into a home a number of years ago, this was. You'll know this by the story. Broke into a home he'd been targeting for a number of days now. He had assumed the whole family had gone off on Christmas break. It was December 22nd. And he broke in, but the wife was home. She started to work the 23rd. She's shaken. He doesn't know she's home. She doesn't know what to do. He asks her if he has, she has any money. She says, no, I have no money here at the house. But she says, I could, I could write you a check. <laughs> he says, that'd be great. Gives her a name. She says, can I see, like, do you have any ID on you so I can spell it properly? Oh, yeah, no problem. Pulls out, it's, come on, right? She, uh, she writes him a check and says, oh, I just need to, you know, write a copy here so that I have it. Yeah, oh, yeah, no problem. And he takes the check. He goes to cash it the next day and he's arrested. I just love dumb, crooked stories. Let me take you from dumb, crooked stories to the cross. Because Jesus, who's born between animals, dies between criminals. I don't know if you ever thought about that. He's born among the animals, and he dies among the criminals. The cross was a form of torture that was developed by the Persians, and it was perfected by the Romans. It meant to create dehydration, suffocation. It was a horrific form of torture. We would depict Christ on the cross with a cloth of some type, but you were naked on the cross. It was meant to be humiliating. And so our Savior hung there naked on the cross, dying between two criminals. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us at first that both the criminals are hurling insults at Jesus. He's been whipped. He's been beaten. A crown of thorn has been placed on his head. Of course, when they whipped him, there had been shrapnel on the whip so that every time it came off his back, it would just rip it to shreds. And he's dying. He's going through something more excruciating than the other criminals are, these insurrectionists likely, rebels against the state of Rome who are being killed. Because Christ has the wrath of the Father being poured out on him. If you have your Bibles, Luke 23 on your tablet, on your phone, or if you're a guest today and don't have a Bible, listen along as I read the scriptures. Luke 23, beginning at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified with him, 
among with the criminals. One was on his right, one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They divided up his clothing by casting lots. He's been crucified or he's being crucified because of his claims of deity. They had nothing else against him. He's claiming to be king. He's claiming deity. They call him a blasphemer. So he hangs between two insurrectionists who've wronged the state and he's dying. But as he's dying, he calls out, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing in his love and mercy. Verse 35 says the people stood watching and even the rulers sneered against him. They said he saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, the chosen one, the soldiers came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. Jesus doesn't take this wine vinegar. He does take a drink later. This wine vinegar has a dulling agent in it and Jesus wanted to experience the full wrath of the Father coming upon him. But they begin to mock him. They begin to laugh at him. They begin to jeer at him. You saved others, save yourself. If you're the son of God, do something. Show us who you are. Prove to us. And yet, he continues to die. Our church has done a lot for the poor in our area. At Christmas, we'll have hampers to 300 families. We'll run a soccer league this summer. It's in full force with 200 kids with parents and grandkids, uh, grandparents, sorry. There'll be 500 or so people on the soccer field. We put housing into our building. The government gave us $8.7 million towards the housing portion of the building that has 49 people living in 45 units, but it cost $11 million to do the housing, so we put $2.3 million in of our money into that, God's people. And wherever I go and you tell that story, people are fine. You talk about Christmas hampers, you talk about housing, you talk about sports leagues, everybody's okay. But you get to Jesus, and it throws everybody off. People ask you why you do what you do and you explain that's because of who Jesus is and what he's done for you and nobody knows what to make of that. Now it's not new. They were mocking Jesus when he was here. Listen to these quotes. H.G. Wells, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess that as a historian, this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Gandhi. I cannot say that Jesus was uniquely divine. He was as much God as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad. Gorbachev. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for all of humanity. John Lennon. We're more popular than Jesus now. My son will be 21 this summer. When we were pregnant with our first child, we took prenatal classes. Some of you have been through those. You take them once. And um, we never did it again. We have four kids. And, and so you learn everything in that first experience, you're fine. In fact, I remember at one time I learned so much and I was trying to be so kind and offer my wife so many different things as Ethan was being born that she finally said to me, it'd be good if you just left the room for a few minutes. That's <laughs> how much I learned. Um, but we went in for the prenatal, it was in a church and uh, we got into the hallway of the church and all the expecting dads were standing in one spot, all the expectant moms were standing in another spot. And, while we're standing there in this one spot with all the expectant dads, we're looking up and there's all this stuff at the church as there should be about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And the guys start to mock Jesus. And I was about to step in and say something when the nurse called us all in and said, all the expectant dads sit over here, 
all the expectant moms sit over here. So, okay, she talks for a few minutes and she says, take a moment and introduce yourselves to each other. Just tell them who you are and what you do for a living. <laughs> Great moment. Right? I'm third guy in. So first guy, second guy, third guy. I say my name's Dwayne and I'm a minister. And so I believe that the Jesus whom you are mocking in the hallway is the sovereign Lord of the universe who judges the living and the dead. It's <laughs> exactly what I said. Exactly what I said. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Next guy. Next guy's like, I used to go to church, man. I didn't mean to make fun of him in the hallway. I'm so sorry. <laughs> he doesn't even tell us his name. Two guys down. We're now skipping guys. He's like, I am a Christian. I shouldn't have been saying anything out there. Right? I mean, you bring Jesus up. And all of a sudden, it's all controversy. People want to even say that he didn't exist. Well, verse 38, there was a notice written above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But this other criminal, the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? We are under the same sentence. We are being punished justly. We are getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. He moves from being controversial to someone that you even mock. That's what the one criminal is doing here. He's in insulting Jesus. He's hurling insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself. Save us. I mean, do something. Our culture has moved to the place where it wants to eliminate God from existence. It wants us to believe that there is no one greater than us, that we are the top of the pinnacle, that we are at the end of the evolutionary chain. But there is no evolutionary chain. Listen, Richard Dawkins said this, we are all atheists, he says, about most of the gods that humanity has ever believed in. Some of us just go one god further. Christopher Hitchens, before he got, died in his book, God is Not Great, thus, though I like to differ with such a great man, Voltaire was simply ludicrous when he said that if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. The human invention of God is the problem to begin with. Thomas Nagel, famed philosopher. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So they try to teach our kids what? God doesn't exist. The universe can self-create. We watched this when the Karen people from Burma who lived all their lives without running water, without sanitation, without electricity. Can you imagine that? Refugees who came from Burma, the Karen people, because of the genocide that was going on there. Can you imagine living? The one gentleman, Klose, who's now on staff with us, he lived 35 years of his life without running water, sanitation, or electricity. 23 of those years in a refugee camp with 400,000 people in a mud hut bamboo hut where they would drop a bag of rice off once a month and you could use that to eat and whatever you grew on the land, that's all you had. When they came to Kenda, because they were an agrarian people only going to grade seven and whatever education system a refugee camp would offer, they end up in whatever grade the children, their ages. So if you're 16, you're in grade 11, even though you've only gone to grade four maybe in a refugee camp. So they're in school, they don't know any English, and as they're learning English, they're being told, God doesn't exist. Why do you believe God exists? They go home and say to their parents, why do you believe God exists? Their parents say, because we do. The teachers would say to their kids, the Bible, it's actually dangerous. That's what they're teaching them now, right? 
The Bible's dangerous. You know that, dads, aren't you? That's what they're teaching your kids at school. The Bible's dangerous. It's immoral. They're calling us immoral, the Word of God immoral, because of what it teaches on sexuality or gender. And so all these Karen youth just walked away from the Lord, just abandoned their faith and got involved with all kinds of stuff. In fact, in the fall, I took one of their young men's funerals, 18 years of age in our city, who was shot three times in a targeted gang-related incident gone bad, and then they ran him over with a vehicle to make sure he was dead. You see, they want to teach us that God isn't real, he doesn't exist. I said this this morning at the breakfast, there's only four possibilities for the universe's existence. The one is this, nothing can create something. Well, that is the most preposterous thing I've ever heard in my life. That you give nothing as much time as you want, and eventually nothing can make something. Number two, matter has always existed. And matter is able to move from an inorganic state to an organic state, from non-living to living. Well, you can study all you want, read whoever you want. No one, zero people on the planet can offer any explanation for how matter can move from an inorganic state to an organic state. Number three, this has become popularized lately, that we live in a multiverse. In fact, there's a huge TED talk on this recently where you could listen to one of the famed philosophers in the United States with one of the most hits ever on TED, talk about how because there are so many possibilities of a universe existing, of course, one is going to exist that has life like ours. So his answer is we exist because we exist. Like, come on, man. And everybody's like nodding and applauding. And they got it from Marvel. Like, right? We watched a little too much of the Avengers. Oh, there's a multiverse. Spider-Man said so. Oh, that was Nick Fury. And then... And then the last one, of course, is God did it. That there's a sovereign being in the universe who's in charge of everything, and God was able, by his very might and will, to create the universe we live in. And so the one criminal, he's hurling insults at Jesus, but the other one stops him and says, don't you fear God? Don't you fear God? This man, sorry, we're under the same sentence. We're being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. This man, he's done nothing wrong. He's done nothing wrong. All of a sudden, this other criminal on the cross, this insurrectionist, comes to his senses. He has this aha moment on the cross while he's there. And he realizes as he's watching Jesus, we don't know what happened. Was it when he called out, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing? Because when you were a criminal dying on the cross, you tried to get your blood on the people around you. You tried to urinate on the people around you. You tried to spit on the people around you. You hurled insults back. And all he saw from Jesus Christ was grace. He looked at John and said, take care of my mom. All he saw coming from Jesus was grace. And he says, don't you fear God. You're insulting this man and somehow this man is vitally connected to him. You see, we should fear God. He's not just a little notch above us. I mean, God spoke the universe into existence. If, if you don't think that's hard, this afternoon in your backyard, just say, let there be a flower. Just something simple, right? Right? Let there be a flower and see what happens. And men, if your family sees you and you're old enough, they may have you, you know, later today institutionalized. But that's a whole other story on Father's Day. Right? Let there be a flower. Let there be, let there be a blade of grass where there's no grass. Let there be, just try it. And God not only created everything but he sustains it by his might and will. Don't you fear God? He's not just a notch above humanity. I mean, we stand in awe 
of a being who needs nothing to exist. He simply self-exists. That's who he is. In fact, they know this. Listen to this. Stephen Hawking says this. The odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clear religious implications. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just the way it did, except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. Kai Nielsen said this, suppose you suddenly hear a big bang and you ask me what made the bang and I reply, nothing, it just happened. You would not accept that. In fact, you would think that my response was quite unintelligible. Don't you fear God? You see, God has the power and the authority to welcome us into his presence or to cast us aside. Now, I, I speak at universities all over the place and out of the pandemic. And when I'm in a Q&A, people will stop me and say, well, pastor, hang on, hang on, hang on. You just talked about hell. Hell's not fair. And I'll say, whoa, why is hell not fair? They say, well, how can a loving God ever have a hell? I'm like, hold on, hold on. You're confusing things here. You see, hell is people getting exactly what they want. If for all of your life you say you don't want God, you don't want God, you don't want God, you don't want God, God gives you exactly what you want. You don't get God. It's just not what you expect. Because where there is no God, there is no love, there is no joy, there is no peace, there is no fellowship, there is no hope. You see, when you eliminate God from the equation, all of that is gone. I'm not saying God isn't the owner of hell. Of course he is. God owns all things. He is the sovereign I am. I'm simply saying you remove the qualities of God from a place like that. Love, joy, hope, peace, fellowship. You get exactly what you asked for. You don't get God. It's just not what you expected. Don't you fear God? He says, we're being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. This man, he's done nothing wrong. He has this aha moment. I have sciatica. I was diagnosed with sciatica a few years ago, three, three years ago. It's awful. I have pain that runs through my body. Sometimes it wakes me up in the middle of the night. And the doctor said to me, the solution to your sciatica is one thing. He said, you need abs. I have never had abs. <laughs> when I was fit, I never had abs. And so, and so I go to the gym. I know it does not look like it, but I do. I go four times a week faithfully to the gym. I cycle to the gym, which is six kilometers away. Go and work out for 40 minutes and come home. And this spring, I was frustrated, and I thought, okay, there's got to be a better way. So I looked up working out at the gym, and I had this aha moment. Push, pull, legs. You're supposed to do a push day, a pull day, and a leg day. My legs are fine. I'm back in the gym. But all I've been doing is pushing on objects. I need to find objects at the gym to pull on. So I looked at all these machines. I found different machines I, I could pull on one morning. Pretty proud of myself because I could actually do a fair bit of weight. And I thought, you know what? There's a chin-up bar. Yeah. All goes south from here. And I thought, you know what? There's a little, there's a little thing there like, to put your feet on to jump up. So I, I put my feet on. I jumped up. I grabbed the bar. It's like 6.30 in the morning. And I went to pull and nothing. Like nothing. I've been going to the gym four times a week. I can bench like a couple of hundred pounds at times, like 180 or whatever with, the, with certain other weights. And nothing. I can't do a thing. I can't budge. So I get down. There's a counterweight, but I don't know how to use it yet. And so I just put it down. I put it down to like 20 pounds. Like that's going to do anything. And I jump back up and I got nothing. And now almost the worst thing that can happen to you in the gym has happened. There's now 150 machines upstairs, six people, and two of them are watching me. 
and they're 19 and they might weigh a buck 20 each. And I'm like, come on. And so I got nothing. And so the one kid says to me, sir, oh, it gets worse, eh? Now they're talking to you. Sir, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm fine. And his friend says, you don't look fine. But I had this aha moment, push, pull legs. And so now I've been working out differently. It's actually helped, my wife would say. She's thankful for that. And, and when I said to the doctor, you know, I, I don't want abs. I said, my wife doesn't want a husband with abs. And she said, I, I could live with it. <laughs> so the one criminal is still going at Jesus. But the other one stops. Don't you fear God? We're being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. He's completely, utterly innocent. And then he offers one of the most audacious requests in all of human history. Jesus, do you, um, do you have it in you to remember me when you come into your kingdom? You see, when you were hanging on the cross, you were your mother's heartache, you were your dad's embarrassment. The only people that went to the cross to watch you die were the people who wanted you killed. The family wasn't there, you were alone, isolated, abandoned. It's Father's Day. And I talked to a few men outside because I mentioned this this morning about how COVID has ripped some families apart. And there were some men as I walked around outside, maybe you're sitting here right now, who said, yeah, it's Father's Day. And I won't even hear from my kids. And they feel alone and isolated, just like this man on the cross. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you felt alone, maybe you felt isolated, maybe you felt like no one could ever love you. And you know, if anyone had the right to say go to hell, because he owns hell. Jesus did. I don't know how long he let the question hang there. I don't think he let it hang long. But this man was about to do nothing for the kingdom. He wasn't going to become a pastor or a missionary. He wasn't going to go and tell his neighbor that Jesus had just done something amazing in his life. He wasn't about to go and tell everyone how kind or gracious or loving he is. All he was going to do was die. He had nothing to offer. And what does Jesus say? I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Because his value wasn't in what he could give to Jesus. His value was in what Jesus could give to him. Is that not good news? He simply loves you. Is that not good news? He loves you. He loves you so much that he wouldn't let the, stop, the cross stop him from reconciling you to himself. He wouldn't let the torturous part of the cross, the humiliating part of the cross, stop him from loving you. He wouldn't let the fact that he would have to become our sin. That's what Corinthians tells us. There's this great, great transference where Christ becomes our sin on the cross as the wrath of the Father is being poured out on him so that he can grant us his righteousness because we sung it, right? Holy, holy. The only way to be in the presence of a holy God is to be holy. And so 
Christ took on our sin so he could give us his righteousness so that one day when all of us stand before God in judgment, all of us will, Christian and non-Christian alike, when all of us stand before God in judgment one day, which is maybe why there's tears in heaven, and then God says he wipes away every tear, and then there are no more tears. When you read this in Revelation on that day for every believer who stands before God in judgment, when he looks at them, he will see his son. And God treated Christ the way I deserved on the cross so that God can treat me the way Christ deserves in judgment. That is the good news of the gospel. That one day before him, we get paradise. Is that not good news? One day before him, we get glory. One day before him, we get to enjoy a place where sin and Satan and death is cast out forever, where there is hope, where there is joy, where there is peace, where there is love, where God is in his centerpiece forever and ever and ever. Amen. Because of what Christ has done. And who is it for? I mean, some of us come and we think, well, man, do I really need God? I've been good. No, there's no one good like God. Our goodness is like filthy rags in his sight. And God died even for our goodness because it isn't good enough for him so that we could have his goodness. And some of us come here today thinking, man, I've never thought I'm too good for God. Why would God ever even want me? And he loves you. He loves you. He loves you. He sent his son Jesus so that he could bring you into relationship with himself. And Pastor Rick said this earlier. He brought you here today to hear this. Is that not good news? He loves you so much that he brought you into this place. He loves you so much that there are people outside of this place, right in your parking lot, who haven't heard this yet. And you're going to go out and have lunch. And I'm praying that over lunch, you're going to spend some time with some of those people. And you're going to show them Jesus and point them to a cross. As we've worked with the Karen people for 10 years, it's three years ago now at Easter that I showed up at their service to preach. I preached a message on the cross and a young man, Wally, who'd walked away from his faith was there. He came to me in tears after the service. He was 22 at the time. And weeping, he said to me, Pastor, what you said today, the Lord used to speak to my heart. Can we meet? I said, sure, we met Monday. We sat in my office, we began to talk, and I said, what's going on? He said, I came to the service yesterday to say goodbye. I was going home to end my life, but I wanted to say goodbye to everyone first. I wanted to end my life because my life is just such a mess. All of the sin, all of the things I turned to in turning from God, all the stuff, I just thought, there's no way out of this. There's no way out of this sinful mess. There's no way out of this. But he said, as I sat and listened to you preach, I realized there was one way out. And that one way has a name, and his name is Jesus. And he said, is what you said true? Can it be even true for me? And that day, God saved Wally and gripped his heart. And God then grabbed a hold of this young man's heart. And at his baptism, he shared, when I baptized him, that he was going to end his life the day that God saved him. And since that time, we've seen 18 of the Karen young men and women come to faith in Christ and baptized now just over a dozen of them. And God is powerfully at work because who did he come for? He came for you. Is that not good news? 
He came for you if you think you're so good that you don't need him because you do need him because there's no one good like him. He came for you if you think that you've been so bad that he wants nothing to do with you. All this criminal was ever going to do, all he was going to do was die. He had nothing to offer the kingdom except that God simply loved him because he was. That's it. God wasn't after him for all that he could do for him. God was after him for him. And maybe you felt lonely. Maybe you felt isolated. Maybe you've been rejected. I want you to hear these words very clearly. God loves you. And supremely, he has shown up in the person of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect life, who never sinned, never did anything wrong. The Bible says he was the fulfillment of the law. That's the Old Testament. He fulfilled the law in two ways. The one way he fulfilled the law is that everything that spoke about the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, was proven true in Jesus. And he fulfilled the law by never, ever, ever breaking any of its commands. And at the end of his life, having lived a perfect life, he was then the perfect substitute, the perfect sacrifice for all of us, that he could give his life up in our stead, that he could take our place, so that God would then treat him, like I said, on the cross, the way I deserved. I deserve damnation, so that God could treat me the way Christ deserves in glory. I will be completely and utterly welcomed in because when the Father sees me, he sees his Son. Because anyone, anywhere, anytime, who has that aha moment and realizes who Jesus is and comes to him and says, hey, God, Jesus, Do you, um, do you have it in you to remember me when I pass on? The answer gloriously is always the same. It is always good news. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. When your eyes close in this place, they will open and see me in paradise. Is that not good news? It is the truth that God offers to anyone who believes. And so maybe you're sitting here today and you came as a guest and you've never heard the gospel. Or maybe you heard it and like a number of my Koran friends, you have walked away from God's love and grace. And today anew you've heard it and you're like, man, that is what I need. This is an amazing church with great people and great pastors. I'm here today but I'll be gone but there are people here who will love on you and who will care for you and who will walk with you. And if today's the day as I pray, pray a prayer right now where God has spoken to you, I encourage you to email them, to talk to them after the service and to say, God spoke to me. I want you to tell, I want to know more about who he is and what he's done for me. And if you're sitting here today and you've known the Lord for a long time and you're like, amen, brother, my encouragement would be that you take what you heard and you share it with the world, starting with your parking lot today. Will you pray with me? We thank you that your love for us is so immense, oh God, that your grace is so amazing, that you would stop at nothing to reconcile us to you, that you would send your son Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you came, that you lived, that you died, and we thank you that on the third day you were risen to life again. We thank you, Jesus, that Satan and sin and death 
couldn't own you. And so you're alive now and forevermore as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And God, I pray for anyone here today who's heard this message and is like, man, God, could you really love me? God, is that really true? God, where your spirit is at work in their life right now, I pray, God, that you would be pleased even this day to introduce them to you in such a powerful way that they would repent of their sin, that they would turn from it, they would trust and believe in you, O oh God, and they would know that you love them now and forevermore. We thank you for this encounter in Scripture. And God, how it reminds us of who we are and our need for you. And so we pray that you'd be with each of us as we go from here. We ask this powerfully in the resurrected name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen.